Hello, and welcome to the Manager Tools Premium Member Conference Call. My name is Maggie Hessel, and I support Mark and Mike with the operational components and activities for Manager Tools. We are thrilled and pleased to have over 250 premium members with us this evening. And at this time, I'd like to turn the call over to Michael Ozan. Mike? Hey, thanks, Maggie. Hey, everyone. Great to have you here tonight. Um, I'll, I'll echo what Maggie said. Mark and I are absolutely thrilled that we have the opportunity to talk to you tonight. Um, we, we share at conferences often that we feel very blessed and that we get to do every day. We get, we get to live our dream. And a lot of the folks on this call are the reason we're able to do what we're able to do. And, that, and, our, and our dream is sharing effective management with the world and changing the world one manager at a time. And you all help us do that. So thank you. Um, thank you. Um, so I thought I'd start off a little bit, which is kind of some of the things uh, we're doing operationally, and then we'll, we'll, we won't spend too long here. We'll get right to your questions. But uh, one of the things that, uh, that I, I don't know about you, Mark, but I was a little I, – I was, I was thrilled and a little surprised to see an um, increasing number of folks who are asking us to include our material in textbooks, university textbooks. Did that, did that yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess it just disappoints me that they don't have their own ideas, but they're teaching somebody. But that's just me. Hey, look, I'd rather them not have their own ideas because right, right, right. not the ideas we support. So, and the fact that they want to use our ideas, and obviously we, we think our ideas are good, that's, that's a good thing. So we've gotten a lot of requests recently to do that, which is kind of thrilling to us. And um, our... You know, the number of organizations that are calling us and asking to use our materials, to use premium content in the delivery of management and leadership training to their organizations, and some quite quite large, is really exciting. So, um, you know, maybe you were just too close to it, but it looks like people are, are interested in learning how to manage effectively. Um, uh, let's see. What, what can I share? Uh, iPhone. So, we, as most of you know, we have an iPhone application that's out there. We're just getting ready to release a new one. Um, the new capabilities, if you use it, you'll be pleased to know that we have some additional capabilities in there. Uh, for example, the ability to listen to podcasts in the background while performing other tasks. So um, if, you, if you have it today, you know that if you're listening to the podcast, you can't do anything else other than listen to podcasts. So we'll be able to stream that in the background. Um, we are going to add the ability to get the most Recent, maybe the most t recent 10 or 15 of the podcasts. Those of you who have it today know that it's largely, it has the basics in it. We're going to add the 10 or 15 most recent podcasts. So if you want to use that as a podcast player, you can do so. Uh, we're also going to add, we're also going to have book reviews in there. That's not something that's, that's in there today, as well as kind of longer descriptions of the, uh, of the cast themselves to make it easier to find what somebody wants to listen to. So we're getting ready to send that out in beta in the next, oh, probably next week. So if you're interested in being on the beta for that, please just send me an email, michael at manager-tools.com, and we'll add you on there. Um, we're also just kicked off, commissioned somebody to focus on the next release, and that's going to be pretty exciting because one of the um, premium content members are going to be able to browse their premium content from the iPhone app itself. So we'll have that, and it's, we're setting up the infrastructure necessary for 
our next application, which will be an iPad application, which we're very excited about. So think of premium content members. Think about think about the ability to have all your premium content on your iPad whenever you want it. Um, so in a very easy to use um, uh, manner. So we're pretty we're pretty excited about that. Also, I know I know I can hear the the moans about iPhones and iPads where we we recognize that there are folks out there that are not on Apple, and so we are. Uh, once again, looking for alternatives in terms of how to release this, for example, to the Android application, Android platform. So if you're on Android, we haven't forgot about you, and we're, we're working on that. Um, other thing, I guess it, we, we're, we're uh, a little worried sometimes about announcing stuff before we do it, but one of the things Mark and I are looking at very seriously now is a way of, of um, augmenting some of the stuff we do at conferences and producing value by delivering web conferencing services. So think of a web conference where we would share, maybe it's a couple-hour session on, you know, pick a topic of choice. And as you might expect, we'll be offering that to premium members first as a way of uh, moving forward. So you can look forward to that. Mark, anything Anything? You think I left out? We need to talk about. Should we get right? Um, no, I'm. I'm hoping. I'm hoping you'll do the web conference, right? You're going to do it for me. Yeah, there. there you yeah. Go. yeah. It'll be easy. Some people show up. How's that? Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, take it off, Mr. Uh, Mr. Horseman. Uh, okay, questions. All right, so folks, just to be clear, I'm told I don't have to read the questions. They've been posted online, so I'm only going to mention the name in a very brief. Uh, uh, overview of the question, and then I'll get right to my answer. Thank you, those of you. I think we have about 20 questions sitting in advance. Uh, I'm, I'm deputizing Wendy or Maggie to tell me if I skip one. I know on the last call I inadvertently skipped one. I apologize for that. Um, so here we go. First question is from Brian about how to maximize results from the Trinity when he's got an abbreviated timeline. He's only a boss for about four, four months before he gets rotated out of his position. So, Brian, the answer there is to announce one-on-ones immediately. And if you can, brief everybody together. Uh, you know, send out the email inviting people to one-on-ones, a standard email invite, within 24 hours. You, know, you can do that tonight or tomorrow. Uh, and, and then brief everybody as, you can, as quickly as you can within 24, 48 hours about what one-on-ones are. That, by the way, folks, that goes to a larger principle we have. When it comes to management, you never want to make a managerial behavior change without telling people what's going to come, what's coming, why you're doing it, and so on. Otherwise, they're going to have their natural flavor of the month um, uh, response, or even if it's not flavor of the month, they're going to resist the change because change with role power, which is what you are to them, scares people. And so they will be resistant um, because they are they behave based on the incentives you have been uh, putting in front of them, which includes your managerial behavior. So always, you know, when you when you roll out one-on-one feedback, coaching, delegation, or anything, you tell people in advance what you're going to do, and they'll be better learners and better collaborators with you when you when you change your behavior. Um, uh, so it's better to brief them together. You could brief people individually if you wanted to, Brian. Um, uh, I know. I think based on what you're telling us that you're, you're distant from them. You're managing uh, retail sites, um, uh, so it's probably better to do a phone meeting uh, rather than briefing everybody individually. 
a phone meeting is not as good as face-to-face, but if you can do it, do it, do a phone meeting very quickly within a few days, and then start your one-on-ones within a week. Um, you probably can buy with that. We usually recommend three weeks, but but that's a significant percentage of your time you're going to work with these folks. Um, this is probably going to feel to them because they're in the field and you're not, Brian. It's probably going to feel like a reporting meeting to them because they're retail folks and retail folks, uh, retail site managers are famous for being managed from a distance and hating it and basically having a high ability uh, to fight through that kind of flavor of the month knee-jerk response that so many of them have for good reason, frankly. Um, So you're really going to have to stress the purpose of one-on-ones and not hijack them yourself by asking them for all kinds of data, reporting stats, and so on. Um, In in light of how short you're going to be there, not sure delegation makes sense as part of the rollout, and you're certainly not going to get the coaching in terms of a normal timeline. And so that really leaves feedback once you start the one-on-ones. The fact is you're going to be a better manager to people distant from you if you do one-on-ones, face-to-face or on the phone. Phone one-on-ones work fine. Um, but, But if you want to try rolling out feedback, I would recommend you do it no earlier than about six weeks. Um, much earlier than that is going to be problematic. Um, and and if you're going away in four months, Brian, I wouldn't rush to get to negative feedback. Folks, I, I promise you, positive feedback is the more powerful of the two. Um, and if you give enough positive feedback, people will start seeking it. Uh, and have less time to make mistakes. Uh, everybody focuses on negative feedback because fear, uh, you know, there are only two emotions, love and fear. All other emotional states spring from those two, and fear is the one that rules in the workplace, and it takes a while to tamp it down a little bit. It never goes away completely, and that's why we all have big fat red signs on our forehead that says, watch out, I'm your boss. I can take away your food, clothing, and shelter. So, Brian, hope that helps. That's our first question. Um, second question. Um, also a Brian, um, a question about should I, can I talk bad about a former employer if in fact I'm having a private conversation with a friend of mine who's thinking about going to work there, right? Uh, and this is a small company, only about 40 people, so his friends would be going to work for a bad boss that he used to work for. Look, Brian, it depends on your relationship with your friends. Um, but our proscription, our recommendation that you don't talk negatively about former employers is not a blanket uh, that causes you to have to fib or be less than ethical in describing uh, firms that you have intimate knowledge of. If you feel that your former boss wouldn't be someone you'd recommend working for, then by all means I would tell them that. Now, now look, I look back in my life, and I think when I was 25, I could have given some pretty scathing comments about people, and I would have been accurate. But looking back, uh, my general experience is, is that subordinates aren't good judges of bosses. Certainly, abusive behavior is not to be tolerated anywhere, but, but I, I probably would be better now at age 50 uh, than at 25 in terms of saying something to a friend of mine that says, look, I can tell you what's good, I can tell you what's not good, and I can tell you, if you ask me, I'll tell you, don't go to work there because I, I can't recommend you would work for this particular guy. Um, so our, our guidance, the prescription against talking negatively, is really not for private conversations with close friends, but rather really for your more public utterances, 
right? And and yeah, everything I, I do live a life where I think everything I'm going to say privately could be brought up publicly. Um, I would still encourage you to ask your friends to behave with discretion, not share your comments with other people. Um, uh, and I, maybe this sounds snarky. I don't mean it to be, but let's be honest. If one of your friends ended up at your old firm despite your recommendation to the contrary and you were candid with them, not vicious, but candid in a professional way about things that you, that you didn't like about your former employer and they then shared your comments, whether they did so to the to a friend or whether they did so in the form of throwing them under your, throwing you under the bus, I'd probably nominate them to be an ex friend of yours. Um, uh, I'm I'm pretty big on loyalty, uh, but the, you, you may find that somewhat different. And and who knows? But but no, you can tell your friends about problems at your previous employer um, because uh, it's the right thing to do for your friends. Just recognize. Please keep your mouth shut outside of your close circle of friends. I hope that helps. Uh, next question is from Lars. I love this question. It's not my favorite question. My favorite question is Frankie's tonight. But Lars' question is, are all my direct reports achievements automatically my achievements? <laughs> well, no. Pro yes and no, Lars. Um, you 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 can't put your directs or her, her you can't put her achievements on your resume, but you can take credit for the organization benefits associated with what she did. Okay, if she cut budgets, for instance, in in her role as managing projects, um, you can say you oversaw. Uh, and approved budget cuts or reduced budgets by X amount. If, if say, uh, uh, Lars, that she works for you and her budgets are 20% of yours and she cuts hers by 10%, that's a 2% budget cut. If you cut your budget by 2% because of her, you can take credit for a 2% budget cut. You can't take credit for, a, for you know, uh, the entire percentage of hers because that's only related to her projects. The denominator is different. Um, but look, if, if you told her to do something or even if you didn't, and, and she came up with some details. You can say you directed, you oversaw, you supervised implementation of budget reductions of thus and such and so on. And by the way, I'm not just suggesting this about budget reductions. I'm just using that as a specific example. You wouldn't claim exactly what she did. In other words, you wouldn't list the, the accomplishment bullet from her resume if she's smart enough to write a resume the right way. But rather, you could claim what you did that allowed her to achieve what she achieved. Um, some people are surprised by this, but folks, look, a, a, a leader, a CEO is responsible for everything the, unit, the, everything the company does or doesn't do. Uh, if, if a brand new product comes out under the CEO's watch and that causes a 20% gain in sales, the CEO may not put down that he designed the product, but he can say oversaw a 20% increase in sales due to project XYZ or product so-and-so. Um, even if you weren't the one that designed the product, you weren't the one that sold it, you weren't the one that insured it, but um, you, you literally supervised or oversaw the, the, the work of others. And part of the reason we can say this is because you could have stopped it uh, and you chose not to. And sometimes benign supervision produces good results. So I hope that helps. I hate answering questions with yeses, or no, yeses and nos, Lars, but I wanted to understand the two sides of that coin. Okay, Dan asked a question. He says, I'm about to manage, I'm about to move from managing two people to managing eight. 
and his question is about strategy for inheriting a very good team rather than merging teams. Okay. Um, Dan, I don't really think of any manager as inheriting a team. I don't, I don't like that. Um, I think inheriting implies previous ownership of the team to a manager. And, and I, the vast majority of managers I know, if I took over a team for them, the only reason I would say inheriting is because the previous manager was just godlike. Um, and so there was ownership of the team, and the team felt bond, bonded to or bound to and loyal to the previous boss. Now, I'm not suggesting the previous boss was bad, um, uh, but, but I just don't like inheriting a team because if you start saying that, if you start saying, I mean, Dan, if you told me, Mark, I'm inheriting you, uh, I would assume that you're implying that the most important relationship between me and you and me and my former boss is me and my former boss. Um, and look, the moment you're my boss, you're my boss, Dan. And, and the previous guy, I'm sure he did some good things. I'm sure he did some bad things. But, but you haven't. The moment I, I work for you, you didn't inherit me. I work for you. And I think it's far better to say, you know, oh, this sounds terrible, but but I think you'll understand what I mean. New sheriff in town. I'm I, I'm the boss now. And you know, I, I I think your previous boss was great, and you now work for me. Um, um, I I think that that um. It, 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 it's, I understand why inheriting works for a lot of people. It's, it's, um, it's sort of a euphemistic way of talking about things. Uh, it does sound in your case like the role, your role is expanding, uh, and a new team is being formed really of two groups of differently skilled folks. Um, uh, and, and it may be, I didn't get it from your, from your question, that it's possible they're supposed to be a, they're supposed to remain a separation between the two skill sets, but based on what your note said, I doubt that. Um, and so if in fact there's supposed to be two groups working for you, even though they all report to you, and so there's some question about unity of team, if you will, my answer may be a little bit misleading here. Um, but, but nevertheless, here, here's my guidance. You've got one team now, okay? You're not inheriting the other team. It's just that now you have eight folks, and frankly, because of your previous experience there, you know them all, at least as I understand your question. Spend some time doing one-on-ones, deepen and reaffirm your relationships with the new guys and the existing guys. Once you feel you have some traction based on relationships and so on, start changing the work that they're doing and the assignments that they're doing to align with this new mandate of creating content rather than web slash magazine articles. Um, and, and don't do it too fast. I suspect there's somebody higher up that says, let's do it right now. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And the first thing I know about new managers is go slow. As Mike often says at conferences, go slow to go fast when it comes to people. Changing everybody's work, the quality, the, the, the type of work they have to do, while smushing two teams together, all reporting to the same boss, will mess everybody up. I had a friend of mine once say, one of the things he looks for is vocabulary, and he said, he, he, he described a similar situation to, your, to yours, and he said, well, I heard this one guy saying, well, there are really two teams here, and I hammered him for it. Um, you know, I, I, look, I don't, I'm not in favor of hammering anybody unless they do something really unethical. Uh, I don't have any problem that people say, well, there are kind of two teams there and we just report to the same boss. I would watch my own vocabulary and set a, a, a standard of we all work for the same team and you guys just happen to have different 
um, sets of skills, but we're going to end up producing one thing. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't jump too quickly to use all kinds of clever vocabulary to say we're one, and I wouldn't punish people if they describe it as two. I, if you do the right things and dot your I's and cross your T's and invest in your relationships over three, four, five months, you'll get to the point where they'll start talking about it as one team because you'll be treating them as professional. Um, there are some things I would do that might help, even if the teams already know each other. I'd insist on one staff meeting, not two, um, and I'd insist on everybody coming. Uh, and I have plenty of people in the staff meeting brief, more than you might normally have. If, if there were a case where there were like two team leads from these two groups of people, Dan, I wouldn't allow just the team leads to brief. I'd either rotate the briefing or I'd have maybe five or six people brief if I felt I could. Um, I'd also schedule a couple of sessions where I did different introduction exercises. Um, you can read about that, and, and we have a podcast about uh, the introduction, uh, how, how to introduce people. Uh, it's one of my favorite manager tools of all times. It's very corny, and it works like a charm, and that's what good management is, stuff that works. Um, and I'd probably find some time for dinner or lunch together as well. Um, not that I would hang my hat on lunch or dinner as team building, but I would just look for ways to bring everybody together uh, and have more time when they see each other together as one team. Okay, hope that helps. Um, let's see, that was uh, page four. Let's see, no, maybe that was page five. Um, okay, that was Lars, that was page five. So now let's do page six. This is from Ian. Um, he says, I'm only in the office two days a week has lots of meetings. I, uh, he's not there the rest of the week. I have difficulty providing consistent and frequent feedback. Okay? Um, there are two points, in that might be relevant here. First, you don't have to have your one-on-ones to face-to-face face to face every week. It's the combination of meetings you've got to go to when you're in the office and one-on-ones that you're doing with people while you're in the office makes those office days just brutal or just impossible to manage. Do phone one-on-ones every other week while you're traveling or while the, people in the, while the people in the field are traveling. If it's just you that are traveling, call in and do your, phone one-on-one, do your one-on-ones on the phone every other week. Um, uh, I think you'll probably learn some things about mixing up phone and face-to-face one-on-one. Sometimes you'll like phone, sometimes you'll like face-to-face. Um, but, but regarding feedback, I just want to be clear, you certainly don't need to be face-to-face or even in a one-on-one uh, to give feedback. It can happen on the phone. Uh, Wendy can tell you I give her feedback over the phone all the time. Uh, you can do it in a one-off conversation. You could call me and if I work to you, call me and say, hey, can I get some feedback real quick while I'm thinking about it? I'm getting ready to get on a plane. I got some feedback for it. Sure, boss. What do you, you know? What do you got? Um, or it could happen in the course of a larger conversation. And my recollection is that somebody asked us recently on the forums, do you have to have a separate conversation for just feedback? And I realized. I felt stupid that I had never said you can insert feedback into any conversation. Feedback, folks, is just talking about people's performance, and it's part of your job in the same way that you would talk to somebody about a status or a project or their work quality or or planning for a meeting or budgets or anything else. All of those things are fair game. It would not be unusual for me to be working with Wendy and to have a discussion with her about planning for my schedule and then give her some feedback about 
scheduling and then immediately say, oh, I had some more feedback for you. Can I give some feedback about something else? You say, yeah. And then I give her feedback about something that happened a week ago that I just called into my head. Um, I certainly don't recommend saving all of your feedback up for one-on-ones. I get the sense from a lot of people that they kind of like doing that. I'm not sure how I feel about that terribly much. So, folks, if you're listening and you tend to be one of those people that gives all your feedback during one-on-ones, um, just try to spread your wings a little bit. I think you're probably missing some of the value of one-on-ones because if you're like so many managers, you're probably weighted more heavily toward negatives than positive. If you're not, well, good for you. But for so many managers, you focus on the negative, and what ends up happening is at some point during their one-on-ones, you're giving two or three or four pieces of negative feedback, which you know, for some directs, if they're not as confident as you'd want them to be, that can be a real downer, and that could be the emotional takeaway they get from your one-on-one. Um, so, again, Jan, um, do, your, do your one-on-ones over the phone every other week, so you don't, you don't have to do it every week that way. And that will give you more time when you're, when you're in the office that particular week, and you don't have to do uh, feedback um, when you're face-to-face or even in a one-on-one. You can do that over the phone as well. Okay? All right, question seven. Paul asked, I love this question, once a task status goes red, does it turn green when it is, when it is completed? Um, yeah, it, yes, yes, Paul, it turns green only with a tinge of red for the blood that the person spilled for being late to begin with. Um, the question is, once a task status goes red, does it turn green when it's completed late or does it stay red forever? <laughs> I really love this question. So look, bottom line, Paul, it goes green once it's completed, Okay. The hidden problem, and this is partially about reporting and partially about project work, the hidden problem with red tasks, right, a task that's red because it's a missed deadline, isn't so much the reporting after the task is done. And, folks, if you haven't read the question, there's a second part of the question that this relates to, but, but rather whether a new deadline is immediately set and communicated once that first deadline is missed. It's amazing the, to me the extent to which energy for a task decays once a deadline that has been missed moves further into the past. So one of the rules of project management is the moment a de- task deadline is missed, the energy is, gonna, is, gonna, is going to uh, um, drain away from that task because if I didn't get in trouble for it being late, what we've discovered is managers don't make people more in trouble for being further late. It's just for some reason um, the, the energy around the task goes away, the deadline, the missed deadline goes away. So what you've got to do immediately is set a new deadline. Okay? Now, it's red until it meets the new deadline, right? Um, but, but the moment somebody – let's say the deadline is Tuesday, and they miss Tuesday, and you say, when can you have it? And they say, well, I could definitely have it by tomorrow noon. I feel like an idiot. Fine. Tomorrow noon, Wednesday noon's the deadline. And Wednesday at 10 a.m., when, in fact, they meet the deadline, then it becomes green again. Now, one of the ways that the redness of that task, that it was red for, what, about 24 hours, let's say, between uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, um, the way the redness uh, – um, propagates itself is not that it stays red to remind us that we missed a task or a deadline, but rather there may be implications for the rest of the project in terms of dependability or dependencies that are going to be affected by uh, the failure of meeting that first deadline and something else that needs to be done afterwards by, by that person or by somebody else. Now, the second part of the question is really interesting. How do you recommend um, – how many dates do I recommend – 
being documented around a task or milestone. And, and, and Paul says a requested date, a committed date, an outlook date, an expected completion date, an actual completion date. I was like, whoa, dude. Um, I have seen some people talk about the idea of having multiple deadlines. It's as if it's a, there's a planning deadline and there's an actual deadline and, and, and then there's the deadline that agreed to versus the deadline that the customer wanted and everything else. I just think these things are enormously dumb. I mean, uh, let's just call a spade a spade. I think that's just galactically stupid. Um, Mike may disagree. Mike has is, is, is managed much bigger technical projects, which tend to be much more dependability and resource-driven than a lot of the project, process, projects I've managed. Uh, Cornelius Fictioner might, might have a slightly different answer, and I would tend to defer to him, pretty smart guy. I tend to oversimplify projects, but, but here are my thoughts on that. Um, Manager Tools generally believes in the deadline, um, and, and by the way, that is when the task is actually due, pr provided that that metric about the deadline, whatever it is, communicated and, and, and supported, um, deadlines are a huge driver of project behaviors. I think listing other dates uh, relative to an actual deadline or something else um, imply that everything, all the work involved is much more fluid than a PM, a project manager would want, and they create much more energy around the politics of when the timeline is, and I think it creates inefficiencies regarding what am I going to work on? Do I want to meet the requested date or the committed date? What if, what if, a, what if Mike's my project manager and he's got a requested date? I didn't really agree to that, so I've given a two-day later committed date. Mike's pushing me for requested. I'm, I have other things to do, and so I'm trying to meet the committed. And now there's tension between Mike and I. And here I am thinking, look, I didn't commit to that. I know they requested that, but I didn't commit to that. Not saying that every project team, team member should be able to choose his own deadlines. But now he and I have got tension. And if, in fact, I make either the requested or the committed date, do we need to be talking about that for hours and hours and hours? The big problem is not what the deadline is. The big problem is whether or not you meet it. And the vast majority of project timelines that I look at, um, there is enough slush in terms of estimating human work involved in tasks that either one of the dates is probably a reasonable date, but let's not argue about what the date is. Let's pick one, um, and let's meet the one that, that we pick. Um, I, think it, I, I think energy around different timelines is wasted energy. I think it fragments uh, effort on a project, and I think it reduces alignment. If me and my boss are fighting about when the actual deadline is, we're not getting any work done. We're just talking about the management of the work, which is not the work itself. Um, reminds me of that great painting of a pipe, a, a Meerschaum pipe. And the, the caption of the painting is, this is not a pipe. It's not. It's, it's a painting of a pipe in the same way that management of other people's work is not that work itself. It's the management of that work. Um, now, look, I wouldn't have any problem with the project manager keeping some sort of record of these kinds of things, the requested versus the committed or so on. I think he's probably wasting his time. Maybe he thinks he could learn something in a hot wash. But, but look, it's not going to make an appreciable difference in the next project. If you track 10 or 15 projects and for every single deadline you've got a committed date and a requested date and an actual completion date and so on, it, it's been my experience that in, unless you're in 
a really, really project-driven culture. And I'm, I would, I've probably been in less than 10 of them in my life, and one of them is NASA. Um, and if you're not at NASA, believe me, you don't know what NASA's like in terms of projects, and particularly on the software side. Um, uh, some project manager, knowing that Robert, who works on the particular projects regularly, always seems to beat his deadlines by a day, is not going to affect the outcome of a mid to a large project that Robert's working on. Um, and frankly, we ought not to be giving Sarah, let's say, an extra day for everything that she needs to do because she makes her committed dates but not her requested date. She's just going to be a day later. If we gave her an additional day, she's just going to be a day later because that's how she tends to manage. Human beings uh, um, manage to deadlines, and giving them more confuses them. Um, finally, just one, one more thought, reporting publicly in, in, in this project about all the different possible dates, um, just to get data for the next project, in other words, having multiple dates for a deadline, isn't, isn't a good idea. Um, saying um, we're going to be really messy this time and confuse people so that we can be better next time. I, I, I mean, if the next time you also have requested and committed dates, you're going to be messy then too. Um, uh, um, something that, that is uh, having to sort out something that is read, but it's actually already been done, that's going to confuse people, by the way, um, or, or something that is it's, it's past one date, but within, it's in, within tolerance of the next date, is, is an inefficiency today that I don't believe is going to be remedied in better scheduling next time. Better scheduling, I don't believe, is a solution to project success. I believe project success is about meeting deadlines with high-quality tasks. And I don't think – I think if you're wrong 20% of the time on scheduling, it won't make that big a difference on projects. Really big projects, yes, but the vast majority of people who are listening to me tonight don't manage really big projects. When I say really big, I'm talking about a million tasks. That's now we're starting to get big. Um, so if you want to keep track of four different potential deadlines or, or measure variability by person of a given deadline, okay, just keep it yourself. It's not going to help the rest of the project. And anything you do publicly which reduces the likelihood of the project getting done is not worth the benefit you're going to get out of doing something differently on the next project because, frankly, you may not be the one managing the project that benefits from the kind of knowledge you're going to get. Okay. Next. Question eight. Uh, this is from, as I pronounce it, Andre, I think. Um, Andre starts off by flattering us and saying uh, how to assign work tasks. I think that was a recent cast that we did. Uh, was the creme de la creme, the highest quality and value of all of our casts? I'm, I'm, we uh, were thrilled to hear that. Um, and uh, he, Andre then goes on to say, I, he thinks that one per, well, person needs to have role power in order to use our guidance and how to assign work tasks. And Andre, we just disagree there, okay? I, I don't think you need role power to ask somebody else to do something. I just don't. I ask Mike to do stuff all the time. I ask Wendy to do stuff all the time. Now, I have role power over Wendy, but I don't over Mike. Um, I don't have any role power over Mike at all. And, and, and Wendy asks me for stuff all the time, and she asks, and she gets it usually. Not always. Sometimes I'm a pain just like everybody else. Um, I, you know, in my mind, 
I, I know hundreds of project managers who, without role power, they say all the time, hey, would you please do X? Now, I think the question is really more along the line of what happens if somebody says no? Um, well, look, if you don't have any role power, my, my thought would be what's the alternative to being nice enough to ask? And if somebody says no, say, okay, what's your concern? Find out what their concern is and then deal in in, in facts or at least in, in clarity about what the the dichotomy is between you and the person who is the resource that you need to do something um, uh, and they're saying they don't want to. Um, so I, I, I recommend whether you have role power or not, you get in the habit of learning that persuasion in large organizations is enormously improved by asking questions rather than making demands. And if you'll build relationships and then persuade, and, and when I say persuasion and I say asking, it goes back to the old sales technique. If you want to sell, ask and don't tell. Um, I, I think you'll be better off in the long run. Yeah, you increase the chance that somebody will say no, but I would argue if you don't have role power, you say, I need you to do X. If privately they're thinking, no, I'm not going to do it, it's far better to find out right away before you walk away from that moment of assigning that work task to them. They're going to blow you off because they don't like you. Um, I'd much rather find out in front that they don't like me and then beg for them to do it rather than walk away and only find out when they miss their deadline. Okay, So I, I wouldn't change this recommendation one bit for, for project managers. Um, now, the, the next question that Andre asks is, what about you know, what about asking? Uh, do do it in terms of email, and and yeah, you can do this by email. You can say to somebody, "Would you please do X?" Um, uh, and then here's the deadline, and here's the status, and so on. But but remember, the whole point of asking somebody is is to embrace the idea of relationship power and go away from what a PM doesn't have, which is role power. If there's no relationship there, email won't, email won't help you build the relationship if it's the first email you're sending to somebody. So, yeah, you can do it. I mean, I send requests to Mike all the time, and we have a good relationship, so he does it. Um, not always, and nor do I to him all the time. Um, but I have found that civility is the grease that keeps us from killing each other internally in organizations. As my dad said, the definition of conflict is two human beings in the same county. Um, so you're going to be in conflict, so it's far better to ask. And, and let them say yes and let them then deliver, and then you pat them on the back and so on. Yeah, you can use email, but I would suggest that far too many technical managers in the world have embraced the idea of email because secretly email is efficient, and too many technical managers believe efficiency trumps effectiveness. Um, and it's just not so. Um, it's true early in your career, but later in your career, it's all about effectiveness. And effectiveness is doing the right things as opposed to doing things right. And email is faster for the sender and less effective in the long run. So I, I, it can be done. I don't, I don't recommend it. And my final word on this question is build relationships with other people and then ask them for things and discover anybody whom you have a good relationship with will do nearly anything um, if you work on the relationship. Okay, uh, next question. Renee, my question is regarding maternity leave. How do you recommend preparing your replacement and directs for your leave period? Okay, well, Renee, I'm sorry I have a habit of not getting pregnant, so <laughs> I'm not going to answer the question, um, but congratulations. Um, I really do think, as I was reading this question, I had pages of, of notes, 
and I realized that this is really a future cast, not just about maternity leave, but more broadly about the idea about uh, um, being gone for a period of time. I find it fascinating, folks. I, I don't know where, how we're doing on time, but but I find it fascinating to me that um, that people are complaining about Apple's succession planning because Steve Jobs is so important. Uh, while Tim Cook is not this design guru genius dude. Um, and, and my thought is, what better succession plan than over the course of the last two or three years having your COO step in for three to six to nine months and be the CEO in residence, even if the, C, the CEO is still around? Um, so I, I actually think Apple's succession planning is proved to be good because the things have done so well um, uh, during Steve Jobs' absence. Um, okay, so look, r real quickly, um, uh, it, it is complex. There are a lot of moving parts. The length of time you're going to be gone makes a big difference, and longer time means you have less ability to ensure that your processes and systems are going to be followed, Renee. Um, but generally speaking, when I hear questions like this, I get the sense that there is not a clear number two already chosen. That bothers me. Um, perhaps to you that seems like a distinction without a difference, but, but a number two doesn't need to be designated if you're going on leave. If they are the number two, they simply take over our managerial role when we're gone. So my recommendation is first, designate a number two. And I'm not talking about somebody to fill in this time, but rather somebody everyone knows is your deputy. You know, you may not have time to do that, and we'll talk about that in a second. But, but if you did, when you go, tell them, look, you're in charge. What that means is they speak for you, they act for you, they are you, they have your authority. For, for those of you who are cringing a little bit because you're afraid you don't have a number two, there's no halfway here. If they're standing in for you but you're still the boss and you're calling in three times a day and you're making them turn all the big questions over to you, you're going to end up managing it from your bed and you're going to suck at it. Um, it's really wrong-headed. It's really bad for morale, and it basically says you're not first among equals. You're the only person who has a brain on your team. And I can promise you, when you think you don't want to delegate to your folks, when you don't want to push them by doing more, what they think is you don't trust them. And if you start degrading trust, your team is going to start falling apart. It's better to have somebody screw it up for two months with you only getting reports about that than saying to them, you're still going to be overseeing everything from home. And no offense, I mean, I, I'm sure I'll be accused of some sort of weird gender bias here, but Commander Tools has a long history of being completely gender neutral regarding management. But look, if you're going to be a mom and you're going to be home, take care of your kid. Right? Don't, don't take, care, take care of your newborn and, and the rest of your family as well as best you can. Um, leave work to work. Um, and if you're not ready to do that, okay, lesson learned. Um, the way you ensure that your fill-in, your number two, your replacement, whomever, whatever you want to call them, is ready to take over for you is to notify them they are your number two, and before you leave, give them some opportunities, shorter than probably a maternity leave, to lead in your absence. Whether you've done that or not, though, you can still do some basic stuff now. You can plan out what you would have been working on, brief them in on the plans you have, the priorities, the projects. If a, leave, a maternity leave were to last three months, I would suspect that most managers would have plans and processes in place that would allow a place to take over as somewhat of a caretaker of, of the initiatives that you've already started. But that's not to say that they won't be able to make their own decisions and perhaps even do things that you wouldn't have done. 
And frankly, the real reason most managers don't like naming a number two is because somebody else might do something they wouldn't have done. But look, you've already done some stuff that your predecessor wouldn't have done, and you probably think of yourself as better than your predecessor. Um, someone doing something different than you when you're the, the official manager isn't the problem. The problem really is managers not training through delegation and trial periods, the replacement, so that even if they do do it differently, it's not the polar opposite of what you as a reasonable manager would do. And I do think this is going to be a future cast. Um, next question. Matt asks, hey, what about heavy industry? Um, is, is, you know, is it any different for heavy industry? The answer is no, Matt. I've delivered these ideas in plants and industrial facilities all across the world, and the responses aren't any different than anywhere we get anywhere else. Uh, the second question was about getting an admin. Um, getting an admin is much harder than it used to be. There's no particular level in any particular firm that pops into my head, though I suppose I could create a matrix based on company size and industry and distance from the top, and I could create a map where they were likely, I could say this band, you're likely to have an admin, this, like, this band, it's possible if you're clever, and this band, it's impossible. Um, I, if somebody asked me blindly, I'd say, hey, if you're the president of a 100-person company, yeah. Below that, no. And the problem with situations like this is where's the line you draw a thousand person firm? It really depends on the industry and the history and how smart the senior people are. But but I can give you Horstman's law of admin distribution, and it's really snarky and I'm sorry. If everybody at your level has an admin, get one. Otherwise, don't bother trying to get one. Um, unless you're really a good political operator and I don't know that. Um, the way to get assistance of your boss's admin is to develop a relationship with him or her and only ask on projects that are big enough to justify his or her time away from a nominal effort that he or she could be directing toward your boss's work. Um, if there are two people sharing an admin, I, I recommend taking 80% of that admin's time if you can, but I don't recommend that if you're thinking about sharing your boss's admin. That would be a bad idea. You could also ask your boss on some small things and pay close attention to the subtleties of his or her responses and then never overstep whatever limited guidance he or she were to were to give you. Um, but if everybody at your level has one, try to get one. If they don't, don't try to get one. You're going to be wasting your time. Okay. Phil asks, hey, I'm a senior manager in a consulting firm. I use the feedback model. Do, I have a mod do we have a model for inviting feedback? Yeah, Phil, we do. There's a podcast on it. It's called How to Ask for Basic Feedback. Um, uh, the process takes 12 weeks. Every week for 12 weeks, you ask at the end of every one-on-one, -on -one, hey, anything I can do better or different, anything I need to stop doing, anything you want me to know that you like and want me to continue, happy to hear anything. And you do that every week in every one of your one-on-ones for 12 straight weeks, trying to break down the belief that you're just throwing a, a wild idea out to catch them so you can pound them. Um, and frankly, for 90% of the managers, 90% of the time, you're not going to get anything. That's because you have a big fat red sign in your forehead. It's only probably towards the end when your directs really realize that you're serious and they've had a chance to think about things that you might get an inkling of something that might be useful. And after 12 weeks, we recommend do, you, you do what's called a start, stop, and continue exercise. Um, and just to save everybody time, I'll leave that to the podcast to explain. But it's one of my favorite, favorite things in management, start, stop, and continue. Pretty easy. The cast is 20 or 30 to cast. No brainer. Next question is from Howard. Um, 
I am not going to read the question, but the question is about guidance about helping a management team provide information to an owner. Uh, and Howard, this is a dangerous question, and there are really no good answers to it. I'm, I'm going to disappoint you. Um, the first rule of bosses when it comes to subordinates is tell your boss the truth, and the truth will set you free. Stop trying to manage up, okay? Um, if you believe the owner of your firm is not effective and his team is not effective, if you're not one of that team, the chances of you making a big difference is zero. Um, I, I've told people before, if you look up at the executives in your firm, what you call politics, they call collaboration. And I know you're not asking about politics per se, Art, um, but the larger message here is that if you're looking up at what's happening, I can promise you your perspective isn't as accurate as you think it is. And in this particular case, there are just too many possible causes of this problem. It might be the execs, the team. It might be the boss. Uh, it might be that because it's a family company or whatever, he's going to have all the power he wants, and you're not going to change him. I can tell you that the chief executive is unlikely to change unless one of his trusted advisors virtually demands it, or he has a significant emotional event like intending business failure or something like that. Uh, I wish it could be more helpful. If you need more than that, Howard, and you think things are really in pain for your firm, um, post something on the forum or send me a private message, and I'll try to help you in more detail. Um, I wouldn't spend too much time trying to massage the senior people in your firm. Next question is from Frankie. Hi, Frankie. It's good to hear from you. It's a big question. It's about succession planning. It's my favorite one of the, the batch. Um, there, there, there's no way to answer this well, Frankie, without taking an hour. I know I've let you down before with questions, uh, stuff you've asked for me from. I'm going to try to be brief and answer your specific questions. If you'd like me to talk more, I'll be happy to do it to make up for my previous failure with you. Um, uh, I'm glad it's going to be a recurring topic at a board meeting. Uh, I would actually recommend you have a separate meeting just to go over the people in the succession planning once a quarter, where all you do is go over all the people. That, that may be a bridge too far, but I, I really do think people matter and more time on people is going to make you better in all aspects of the business. One of the most fun experiences I've had, and I've done it four or five times, is leading an executive team through the process of the succession planning and reviewing the quality of the people because suddenly all of the managers start understanding what the strengths and weaknesses of the firm are. And, and most of us tend to see our own little area, our little team, our little fiefdom. And as you start sharing data across the organization, Organization, you realize, wow, we've got big holes, and we have opportunities to fill them as well. Um, uh, I, I would start with understanding in your first discussion, I, I recommend in your first meeting, you, your goal is to finalize the basic template of informa information you want to gather on each of the managers, each of the employees in this succession discussion. To make it easy, I'm going to recommend that you do what amounts to a one-page baseball card for everybody, a little small picture in the corner, vital stats about your length of employment, previous job, maybe staple their resume to the back, performance, comments, strengths, weaknesses, et cetera. And, and over the course, you know, ask somebody in HR or you take responsibility for it, put together a mock-up, and at the first meeting say, we're going to spend an hour agreeing on what should or should not be on this template. And once we agree, even though this is draft one and we're going to probably change it a couple of times this year, every single manager in the firm is going to have to fill out one of these forms on every single person who works for them that is in the succession planning discussion. Um, you know, you, you asked about ways you can minimize favoritism. There are really two ways to do that. You can get the right people in the discussion. And look, if you have the wrong people, some people are going to play favorites, and that's just a matter of executive variance in terms of uh, performance and effectiveness. Um, 
And the other thing you can do is insist on data. And by data, what I mean is the kind of stuff we talked about in the cast where we highlighted what we called the steel cage deathmatch. In other words, Frankie, if you're my boss, um, you should be able to count on me putting together a baseball card about, let's say, Wendy, which says, here, you know, I think her strengths are A and B and her weakness is C, and here are the things she's done that prove A and B are a strength. Here are specific bullet points, almost like accomplishment bullets from a resume, that show that she can do this and that and the other thing. So that way, when you go into a meeting, you don't have to say, oh, well, you know, Wendy, she's so wonderful. The managers who have the best data, which is hard facts about performance and results and retention uh, and likability, if in fact that matters, or sales numbers or quality numbers or budget numbers, whatever, those are the ones who win. And, and hopefully over the course of the year, you'll tighten up those baseball cards and they'll just be replete with all kinds of fabulous information about the performance of the managers um, on, on, that are involved in the succession program. Um, and then what you do is every manager fills out the, the, uh, their key subordinates baseball cards. It might be everybody at some levels. And then the manager's boss reviews the card of each of their skips that's in the program before that card comes in front of the board. And then the board members discuss the validity of the input. Now, I think you're bullshitting me here. This one's where, yeah, I agree. She did do these five things, but I'm a little bit questioning this over here. And then you talk about opportunities and problems associated with the near term and long term of somebody's career. Hopefully, you can empower the HR guy in the room to be able to call BS when somebody just starts indiscriminately praising somebody without real data. Oh, I know I don't have any data on Bob, but everybody knows how much we love Bob. I tell you, every time I hear somebody say, we, we all love Bob, we all know Bob, I immediately think, red flag. Red flag, Bob hasn't done Jack, but he survived because he's well-liked, and you don't get to be successful and promoted just because you're well-liked. Good to be well-liked, but results and retention are what really matters. Um, you asked about connecting the development process with the vision of the company. A great idea, probably too much to ask for in the first year. Um, and and so I would work the kinks out of the system in the first year, get the system working really smoothly, and then in the next year start saying, can we tighten this up and start aligning what we're talking about with what we see happening in the next five or ten years. And depending upon how many folks we're talking about, both in the program and on the board, you're probably going to end up wanting to do a whole day rather than just a part of the board meeting to have this discussion. I'm going to guess, I could be wrong, Frankie, that we're talking about, let's say, 100 folks. Frankie, that's going to take a whole day of nothing but that. Go somewhere nice. You're already somewhere nice. Build an agenda for the day. If you want some help on that, I'll do it. And, and, and break it up so you can crack the whip every hour and say, hey, we got 10 hours. We've got 100 people. We've got to do 10 people an hour. That's five minutes a person. It's been five minutes. We've got to move on to the next person. Otherwise, you'll spend a half an hour on the first 10 guys and never get to the last 50 or 60. I hope that helps. Reach out to me if I can do more. Great question. Uh, next question is from a guy named Mark. Um, uh, Fast-growing company, uh, um, a lot of frustration at the top. Is there anything I can do or should do for the people at the top of the firm? Uh, and that's a tough one. And you know, I, I wrote down, wouldn't it be great if all bosses were solid and all chief executives were awesome? Uh, of course, we'd be out of business. Um, if you're not part of the leadership team, there's probably very little you can do, Mark. It's too hard for me to make a suggestion that would have traction without detailed knowledge of your particular situation, particularly in light of a company of only 100 people. Um, and, and that wouldn't have much value to anybody else who's listening. Um, it's hard to say what you might do. I do think the most overlooked strategy in situations like this for somebody like you is to deliver great results yourself. That has the effect of increasing your expertise 
Uh, in all areas, people are, are perceive your expertise power as being increased because you achieve results and that makes you look good. Uh, and that causes more senior people to listen to you. It also increases the chances that your role power will increase. Um, I've often said at conferences, if you want to give feedback to your boss, just work like hell and get promoted twice, and you can give him or, him or her all the feedback you want, but from a different, different direction. Um, and, and whether better performance gets you more expertise power or more role power, even if it doesn't, it will still help you make a transition if you decide to go somewhere else um, because you just can't stay based on the frustrations you're feeling. I want to mention three thoughts, though, quickly on transition. First of all, Mark, every company has its problems. Manager tools is, is too constrained by me, frankly, by the hours in the day. Mike's a better executive than I am, and I'm really protective of the quality of our cast too much so. Nobody but Wendy and me get to write them. That may, we may have to change that at some point. So that's a weakness of manager tools as an institution. Um, and when you go interview with another company, you're not going to see their issues. You can know your company's issues, but you won't know the other company's issues. Um, and, and related to that, you're unaware of the goodwill that you have where you are. Goodwill is that invisible grease of knowledge that you have about who gets what done and how to make things happen in your firm based on relationships inside information and so on. You lose all of your goodwill when you go somewhere else. Um, and for those of you at small companies, if you've never been at a big company and you're thinking about leaving your small company because it's just not professional enough for you, leaving a small company for a big company can be a very rude awakening. The tightness of big company systems can be suffocating. You may find yourself longing for the good old days of ineffective and inefficient senior executives. And uh, I have told small, pe small company people before, better the devil you do know than the devil you don't. Um, and the egos get bigger at bigger companies, too. Um, question, Andy, what are your thoughts on personality tools like this uh, or uh, other things besides DISC? Look, I, folks, I'm not a big fan of anything but DISC. Most folks, when they talk about instruments like this, they have one they like, and, and they're fine with the others. Look, guys, I'm not fine with the others. I think Myers-Briggs is a waste of time. I'm, I'm totally okay with you disagreeing with me, but I think it's a waste of time. Um, I, I know I'm not everybody's cup of tea. I know I piss some people off sometimes. Some of you listening don't like me, but stomach me because we have good stuff. Um, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you I love Myers-Briggs. Three-quarters of the people that I know that have done it can't remember what they got on the dang thing, and nine-tenths of the people who did it don't know what it means, what, whatever it is they got. And the big problem I have with Myers-Briggs is it's not actionable. Now, look, it may be every bit as scientifically provable as DISC, but it just doesn't, it doesn't get to me because manager tools focuses on actionable things. We believe behavior is what produce profits. Um, DISC, though, is clear. It's about your behavioral tendencies. Um, the beauty of DISC is it only tells you how you behave when you're not thinking about behaving, and yet it also says you can behave any way you like you think about it first, um, which just appeals to me. Um, and, and DISC also says you can, you, know, you, you can change, and then it suggests, although most trainers when they're doing it don't suggest you should change, they just make you feel real good about how cool the instrument is that it pegged you so accurately. We haven't come up with our own. We probably never will. We like the data support, the, the incredible amount of data that exists to support DISC. It's, it's essentially unassailable from a, from a scientific perspective. And you asked about, is it, is it impossible to categorize people into boxes? Well, apparently not, because we're doing it. Um, but we do make a point at all of our ECCs that there are 7 billion people in the world. And as unnervingly accurate as DISC is, it is only a helper tool. The key to interacting with other people is getting to know each person individually. 
That's why I think generational management is a big fat lie. It's dangerous. DISC is a way to get started so that you can reduce the conflict between you and somebody else and therefore increase the harmony between you and them. But harmony is not, increasing harmony is not the same thing. It's not, it's not enough just to decrease conflict. DISC will help you decrease conflict and then increasing the harmony is about you focusing and working at a relationship with another person. Okay, I think I've got, what, a couple more, right? Uh, let's see. Um, can, I think, let's see, Ro Roger asks, can co-leadership or management be effective? And he gives an example of two managers, what, what we would call in many organizations, two in a box. Um, yeah, it can be effective, Roger, but it's much, much harder than it looks. I would not recommend the structure you have outlined as my worst enemy. Um, I, I wish I didn't have to admit it, folks, but it's a real fact of organizational life that most of us have less and greater relationship with our bosses, and, and therefore the idea of having two bosses just makes it even worse than that. Or, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not times two, it's to the second power. Now, look, it'll work if you have two folks who totally trust each other and they have low ego issues about their, the, the two-in-the-box situation they're in and, and the peer making a decision that they might not have made. Um, and it also takes mountains of communication. And if I knew nothing else about the two people you're talking about, I'd say, how good is their communication in terms of quantity and quality? And unless it is outstanding, and outstanding communication is pretty rare, I'd expect some different structure to probably be a, a better solution. Um, okay, last one. Um, a couple minutes over, I apologize, folks. Joel asks, uh, I'm, I'm called in to manage projects quickly. quickly. Uh, I try to build a sense of urgency. Uh, what else can I do to ensure I drive the team to execute consistently? I, I like this question a lot. Execution is the unsung weapon of great managers everywhere. There are so many managers in the world that get no press and deliver over and over and over again because they keep their head down and they're disciplined about, I'm going to work on three things and only three things. I'm going to get in trouble for these are the five, but fine, get me in trouble. But the three things I'm really responsible for, I'm going to nail them every single time. I love that in executives and managers. I'd suggest to you, Joel, developing better relationships and increasing performance, communication, which is basically, you know, you know me, one-on-ones and feedback. Um, there's one other thing, though, that I do want to mention. I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, see how you can incorporate this. I've noticed for years that great bosses, the ones that produce great results and keep people around, are the ones who really communicate with a pretty single-mindedness about whatever they're focused on. Uh, I'm sure this probably dates me, but for those of you who are old enough to remember um, it's a bit like uh, the, the sergeant on the TV, Hill Street Blues in the, in the 80s, a guy's name was Sergeant Esterhaus. He, every single show, at the start of the show, he ended his morning briefing. And for those of you who are fans of the show, go to YouTube and listen to it. It's great. He ends his morning briefing with, let's be careful out there. And that was his calling card. That was what he was focused on. He was worried about his officers out in the field, um, you know, in dangerous situations. He basically seemed to be saying, hey, look, I briefed you on a bunch of other stuff, folks, but don't forget the important thing, which is come back at the end of the shift. Uh, that's the kind of guy folks who want to work for. They know what he thinks about, which is their safety out in the field. That's a big plus if you're working for somebody in a dangerous situation. Um, so my recommendation here, Joel, is make sure every conversation you have with your folks returns at the end or comes to at some point in the conversation project performance, status, delays, issues, resources, every time. Don't let somebody leave a conversation with you. Hey, before you go, tell me about project X. How are we doing? What's the status, resources? What do you need? How's it going? Any problems you want to predict? Do that every single time. 
people will get sick of it, which is a great sign, by the way, that they know that's your let's be careful out there. It's boring, it's repetitive, it's disciplined, and that's what great managers do. And I think I got all of them. I, I don't see any um, I don't see any bad messages from any of the, the, the team from Mike or Maggie or Wendy that I that I missed one like I did last time. I, I can tell you guys Yeah, I did not uh when we first started talking about this, I don't know how long ago it's been, things are going pretty fast here the last couple of years, but but I was a little bit hesitant about them. I had more fun preparing these answers and I could have probably talked for another thirty minutes on each one of them. I know you guys wouldn't have liked that, but but um, I love it. This is an example of live forums. If you liked this call, it's that way on the forums a lot. For many of you who have been on the forums for a long, long time, I appreciate it. I know I was gone for several years. I've figured out how to put it back into my daily and weekly routine and uh, come back and help me answer the questions. And, and uh, particularly when I'm really, really busy, I'd love to have other voices helping fellow members out in the, in the forums. And it is a privilege to do this for you guys. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. All right, everybody. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll be announcing another one not too far in the distant future. Thanks, Thanks all. See you all. Bye.